1: Welcome to the New Books in Anthropology podcast. If it's your first time listening, the order of operation around here is there are so many new books coming out every single month that you don't have time to read them, so let us read them for you. We interview authors of new books in anthropology and related disciplines to find out what they've been up to and introduce their books to our listening audience. My name is Jared Miracle. I'm your host. I'm a PhD folklorist from Texas A&M University operating out of my mysterious Dr. Miracle compound somewhere in the state of Oregon. And today's guest is Zeke Valkyrie. He's an instructor in sociology at University of Colorado in uh, Colorado Springs. He has a new book out called Game Worlds Get Real, How Who We Are Online Became Who We Are Offline. Zeke, welcome to the show. Hi,
0: it's good to be here.
1: So tell us about how this book happened. You essentially wrote this completely on your own, unprompted, yes? Uh,
0: yeah, I think originally, uh, if we want to understand sort of the process of how you get about getting a, a book out, is um, I actually was uh, due to present at uh, the American Sociological Association uh, in Chicago, I believe, in 2015. And I was really interested in giving a talk about gamer masculinity at that time. And uh, I was contacted by an acquisition editor uh, who was interested in coming and watching that panel and seeing what I had to say about, you know, gamers doing masculinity online and some of these uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing games. And, uh, you know, through that, she came in, watched uh, what I had to say about it, and then we sat down and had a discussion. She asked if I, you know, have ever considered writing a book, which at the point where, as, you know, you find yourself in uh, trying to – cobble together as much income as possible before we find the ideal position we want to be in uh, and teaching as many classes as I, I've been teaching the last few years. I said I hadn't really considered writing a book or even trying to finish one. So, um, you know, that was a, a pretty weighty offer. Um, but I felt like it was a good opportunity and I felt like I was definitely capable of it. And um, I also feel like a book format can be a lot more freeing in terms of uh, the type of language that you can use and so forth, as opposed to academic journals. So, um, yeah, I took her up on it. And that. In, originally, I would say the intention was about writing about game worlds um, and intersections with gender. And then it sort of uh, became a little bit more robust than that.
1: Although in the book, you do touch on gender a fair bit and the sure. uh, concept of this kind of toxic masculinity thing that's been taking place recently.
0: Right. No, for sure. Um, You know, I I try not to, and even in the book itself, try not to say that the entire book is about, um, you know, constructing or how the ideal gamer is a construct that is, uh, you know, masculine and about consumption, about uh, certain types of hard work as play. Um, But, you know, once you read through it, it does tend to have that process or that format and sort of funneling to uh, that conclusion. But there's a lot of other topics I wanted to cover along the line. Um, definitely about you know the rationalization of play. Uh, definitely about digital consumption, which I think is a growing area of interest for me. Um, you know, in terms of how gamers rationalize uh, spending money on goods that, in, in some aspect, don't really exist. To their you know ones and zeros and so forth, uh, and using that as a you know a set of status poses for uh, reinforcing their gamer identity. That became something I was a little bit more interested in while writing the book, rather than just uh, sticking to sort of the gender prompts that was uh, the original interest of the, you know, the editor, but um, but yeah, I, I think it covers as much as I possibly could without being uh, you know, too verbose. I mean, any any of these projects, unfortunately, have to rely on the fact that many other people were writing in this area, and you can only cover so many uh, you know, topics of interest to you with the pages or the word allotment that you have, so uh, I cover the ones that were Important to me at the time and you know even now looking back at it would think, yeah, you know, maybe I'd take things in different uh different direction. But yeah, there's a lot of gender, definitely, a lot of sexuality um, you know, covered in uh the text for sure. There
1: there are so many books coming out right now in the field of what I suppose we could call game studies, uh that I was trying to choose who I wanted to to invite on the show first. And your book gripped me for for one reason initially, and then for many others later on. Uh, you explain the concept of gaming at the very beginning by using an all time favorite RPG, Mine Chrono Trigger. <laughs> and yeah, and you you had me
0: at frog. <laughs> yeah, frog and Robo, yeah, <laughs> sure. Now, and I I felt like you know that might be a a connection to a. Uh... Uh, perspective gamer audience out there, you know the, much, the more I could uh, you know fold in you know versions from my own uh, or you know experiences from my own gamer history. It's it's not as though you know I'm just plainly a researcher. I've been playing video games you know since I was a kid. Um, you know I'm I'm particularly lean into uh, into the RPG genre, which has now been bestowed the JRPG genre in terms of its uh, distinction from Western design. But uh, Chrono Trigger would be. Uh, maybe the catalyst of most of that interest. Uh, so, yeah, it was a very good uh, example in just talking about how games give us some control over, you know, what we're able to do as, you know, "quote unquote" autonomous players. But that the game is highly structured, like society is highly structured, uh, and this sort of this push and pull between you as a player uh, and whatever the structure of the game wants you to do, as you might experience why you're an actor in the real world, uh, you know, wandering around, understanding that a lot of the institutions and social group, uh, norms and so forth were here before you and you learn and understand how to, uh, you know, act or enact, uh, agency in those situations as best you can, but there's certain things that those structures want from you or those institutions want from you. And the games, you know, games are pretty much the same way in the sense that, uh, you know, there are idealized, uh, you know, ways of participating, you know, the, the, designers built the game to say, Hey, you're supposed to say, save the world um you know don't go messing around too much in the bushes or whatever um and and yet you do have you know the opportunity to uh you know diagnose a handful of your actions that you take uh or uh exercise some autonomy say in your your party makeup choice so you want frog and robo all the time because they're super awesome although honestly when i reflect on it, i'm like I, that's probably what i did as a kid i don't know how i'd do it now if i play but <laughs> <laughs> this uh
1: this ends up getting into a, a bit of work I've been doing on Pokemon recently. Do you use the most powerful critter that you can manage for competition's sake, or do you use your favorite?
0: Right, right, exactly. And that's you know that's part of the uh, you know that one of the earlier chapters in the book I sort of discuss uh, you know rationalization of play, and that is that gamers have these pulls to uh, well they, they construct the thing that we refer to as the meta for any particular game which is essentially, you know, idealized forms of how you're supposed to participate in this game, and a lot of those are calculation based. Um, you know, so what is the strongest Pokemon? What is the strongest, uh, you know, team in Chrono Trigger or the, uh, you know, greatest hybrid of abilities or whatever? And at least then a lot of these online game worlds, uh, that robs a lot of players, particularly if you're new. If you're a novice at some of this stuff and you're coming to World of Warcraft or I still play Final Fantasy 14 online, um, if you're coming to these games and you're um, unaware of some of this, these normative structures of how you're supposed to play, uh, you quite uh, readily end up learning, and if you end up learning that through indirectly, um, you know, you research how you're supposed to play, or if I want to be a healer, like what's the build or what's the equipment I'm supposed to use, um, or you learn that through the social landscape where they tell you sometimes quite forcibly uh, you're doing it wrong, uh, which I always found is you know rather interesting is you know all the old games that you know we're talking about whether Pokemon or Uh, many of these things that existed before, sort of internet or share culture, um, you know, we play these games kind of in isolation. We made our own choices. Maybe I was doing it wrong, or maybe I wasn't doing the calculable best uh, in terms of team makeup, but I did the one uh, that I enjoyed the best or the characters that I was attached to. But once you add the social landscape in many of these games, um, that becomes a lot more difficult. You know, if you want to, you know, in Final Fantasy 14, we have a running joke about uh, black mages who are casters, they blow stuff up, and uh, there's uh, certain, you know, damage potency uh, associations with certain spells. And so you have a a very particular rotation you're supposed to cast, you know, a lot of fires and thunders and so forth, and uh, a lot of your ice magic is not part of that rotation except for recovering certain resources. So they have a running joke about ice mages, uh, that is, people who uh, cast ice magic knowingly or unknowingly that it is less powerful than the magic... Uh, that you're supposed to be using, and they become sort of labeled as this bad player. You're not doing the calculable output best. The, you're not playing the way you're supposed to play, and that can become rather burdensome. Not only for uh, you know certain social groups or parties trying to you know kill dragons or whatever it might be, um, but it can be very damaging to you know your expressive possibilities in this game. When you play this this class, you have to play it a certain way, or other people are going to treat you uh, you know poorly or Uh, exclude you from certain aspects of the game, which I think, you know, becomes a little bit more damning on the the other side rather than just someone saying, hey, you're not doing it right, saying we're not bringing you along to the dragon fight because you suck Um, and you won't obey, uh, you know, the structure of the game and the social community uh, norms of the game, which I always find, you know, rather, uh, yeah, rather telling and rather strange. You know, we were having a little chat before this about games being, you know, escapism or trying to move away from, you know the like call the solid world or the reality of everyday life and all the social controls out here and move into you know this space of play and be insulated from you know some of those social controls and yet you find many of them are you know in full force they just take on a different format you should uh you know work hard for this particular output or build yourself uh as your character in a in a certain way and there's there's really no experimental um or other way to go about it you know we Uh, disseminate this information it's consumed uh, by the gamer community and then it becomes sort of policed uh, by the people who play these games and you will rightly know if you are not doing something quote-unquote right uh, when you are uh, grouped up with anybody in one of these online game worlds so
1: so this raises an interesting question that you you do touch on in one of the chapters the idea of games becoming more efficient Right. That our lives are more crowded and busy, therefore our games should be more crowded and busy, and, and we should have fun almost mechanized within a particular frame. Yeah. So then the question mm-hmm. is, because we, we're trying not to uh, go over the top in terms of scholarship, or, but yeah, it's a podcast on it
0: yeah. and <laughs> for Pete's sake, but why do people play these games? Well, it's, you know, it is it is interesting because I think, you know, the game companies are, are forced within a sort of a strange premise right now. As I mentioned, that there's a lot of, you know, competition from different blinking screens. So you have, you know, streaming media and so on and so forth. And then we just have very, very busy lives. Um, you know, I something I sort of try to empathize with my students about all the time is, you know, I know you're juggling all these classes, all this work, and so on and so forth. And then games are supposed to promise fun, right? And they promise fun in now sort of this, these bite-sized little chunks. You know, if you go home and you see this particularly in the games that I play, the online worlds, you go home and you're you're supposed to be promised that if I log on today and I spend 30 minutes maybe, I only have 30 minutes maybe before, you know, I have to cook dinner and, you know, take care of the kids and so on and so forth. If I spend 30 minutes, am I going to get something done? Am I going to get something, uh, you know, benefit in terms of, you know, a feeling of play or escape or whatever it might be? Um but that promise has to come in a, in a bite-sized chunk. Whereas, you know, the games, even if we just go back, you know, 10, maybe 15 years, you know, I think about, uh, the genre before world of Warcraft was around, or at least before, uh, world of Warcraft in its later stages. Um, you know, these games were time consuming. They were, uh, immersive. If you played EverQuest, uh, you could log on and spend hours not getting anything done. Um, you know, you were lost in the world. Um, but gamers these days, and a lot of the uh, you know, gamers that I spoke to don't have – they really just don't have time for that. Uh, and then there's also you know, competing factors of I want to play other games too. So, you know, and even in these immersive uh, world simulations, they got to promise sort of this efficient sort of fun. Um, you're not going to have to play too much, uh, but you will f- sort of get uh, a sense of progress or uh, we can promise you victory or success or you make sort of bite-sized chunks of uh, progress throughout the week. I think a lot of this has, um, you know, helped, what I want to say, bolster the, the design philosophy about um, keeping people sort of baited to play, but in small chunks day to day. So, you know, World of Warcraft invented, well, essentially invented like daily quests or anything that you, you know, log on and I only need to spend 30 minutes and then I'm guaranteed some gold or experience or reputation or whatever. And then I can go about doing my busy day. Um, you know, the game I'm playing, Final Fantasy XIV, is, is much like that. Uh, You know, I expressed to my students actually just this last week that I've spent at least an hour playing every day this semester and I've done really nothing except for log on for that tiny little bit of progress that the game structure promised me. If you log on, we'll give you these tokens. If you do one dungeon, if you log on, you kill a couple of these monsters, we give you this type of currency that can use to uh, upgrade your equipment. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's see, that fits my, you know, my grading schedule and my lecture prep and so on and so forth. And I can still feel even just for a moment that I'm immersed in a different reality with different rules, but I know I don't have too much time for that. Um, and I think gamers really want that, uh, sort of promise is that you, you can still have, you can still attach yourself to, you know, the memories you have of Chrono Trigger or whatever, when you were, uh, you know, much younger, but we know that the average gamer now is, you know, in their mid thirties. We know that, um, you know, you can't dedicate your entire life. You're not, uh, you know, hanging around in the college dorm or whatever you were back in the day. So we want to still deliver to you some aspects of that experience. You can still embody that and you don't feel left out. And in some ways, I think it also allows people to to hold on to their their even even if it's been a, in reduced in importance, their gamer identity into longer periods or into more distant periods in their life. Um, whereas you know, it, there's a lot of sort of cultural logic that says that games are still seen as immature and this is for a young people crowd and so forth, um, which means that you know we're pushed to give up those sort of things. One of the, one of the strange sort of serendipitous findings I found in uh, you know, talking to these gamers is that how many? When I think of those like normative forces, like pressures upon them to give up gaming, it's like stop doing this, or at least stop doing it so much. And I think game designers, or at least the industry itself, and probably more for monetary reasons than anything else, want to produce these experiences that promise that you can still be a gamer, um, still have sort of efficient or bite-sized little fun, um, but it's not going to be damaging to your life. And it might also be sort of a response to all of the. You know, gamer addiction discourse and all of that, that was, you know, pretty hot and heavy and still kind of is um, for a period of time when people were getting lost in World of Warcraft and EQ and, you know, people were saying that this is, uh, you know, destroying social lives and so on and so forth. Uh, I think, you know, game companies hear that and, you know, a little bit of bad news uh, reputation might be good for uh, selling a few copies, but it's also understandable they might want to adapt to, um, you know, what the culture sees as they could be. Uh, you know, rather problematic or creating problematic use. So um, they adapt to that and making making sure that you can still participate and you won't ever fall behind. Uh, you just have to play a little bit at uh, a little bit at a time, rather than you know uh, where I did in my say college days. I could log on to you know one of the old MMOs and, and spend eight or nine hours on a Sunday getting really nothing done but just being immersed in that world. Which is a, a
1: topic that you touch on a little bit in terms of um your your typography of of different gamers. Um you you discuss the uh the pure gamer versus the achievement gamer, I believe it was, and you uh you you discuss there there are a few of these games. Um uh, I think folklore was one that's come out somewhat recently where you're it's like the old games in the Mist series. It's more mm-hmm. about exploring the world than accomplishing anything.
0: Right, right, yeah. I'd have a you know a small matrix. This is something that social scientists folk tend to do. We try to you know reduce data down into some digestible chunks to make the, the public uh, you know comprehend it, or at least you know it doesn't fly over everyone's heads because we're using our academic language. Um, but yeah, I was trying to really get at the debate that's pretty uh intense in gamer communities which is a sort of hardcore casual um you know dichotomy that's turned into essentially, what I think it was trench warfare um you know, robbing bombs at each other for not being the right kind of gamer and using different uh, language to construct, you know, what is that or what does that look like? And instead I wanted to understand what some of the other research out there has talked about, you know, some of the aspects of gaming that's important, about seduction, about flow, um, you know, about being, you know, highly productive or about being, you know, readily engaged with uh, not only maybe the social uh, environment of the game, but also the emotionally complex or immersive uh, qualities of the game. And so, yeah, the... You know the rise of you know say esports and anything along those lines really plays to that high productivity or what we call progression gamers, um, and we see that in these game worlds in particular the, the the folks that line up for say new patch content, right? They have a new bleeding edge battle that's coming out that's going to be you know the toughest of the toughest, and it means only only the the cream of the crop are going to be able to. Uh, you know, conquer this dragon or whatever the heck they're going to put in the game. And the progression gamers are excited about that. That's exactly what they, uh, you know, why they even keep their subscriptions or why they come back to these games is because they want to do that super hard content. They want to be the people who, you know, garner little status items and so forth. And they want to, uh, you know, challenge themselves. But there's a lot of other gamers who, you know, we log in for, for various other reasons. Some of it's just about... You know, novelty. I think I talked about as one of the types that's not about productivity and not really about engagement, just about the simplicity of fun. Like, if the game's fun, I'm playing it. If the game's not fun, uh, I'll be somewhere else. And then other people on the other uh, you know dimension of uh, productivity and engagement, saying that you know I'm not here to abide by what the game structure wants me to do. Yeah, okay, they added all these you know milestones for this made you the best of the best. But you know, I'm here for the social aspect, or I'm here for Uh, identity, performance, or expression. Or I'm here because the story is just so great. Um, And there's definitely been at least a handful of games, uh, you know, just console games or or Steam games that are stripped of sort of those production elements, um, you know, that that focus more on uh, here, just immerse yourself in this scenario. Um, You know, there's no levels or points or currency or anything along those lines. There's just sort of the experience of games kind of as art. Um, And I, I think that caters to different different types of gamers. Uh, And then on the other end, you have, you know, people who are a little bit more about the, again, sort of the bleeding edge content that is really, really tough and really about competition or really about status or, you know, sometimes it's about cooperative play in terms of how well, say, a raid group uh, works together to conquer this dragon. So, yeah, I try to work on that a little bit. If nothing else, just to sort of defang some of the discussion between, you know, the hardcore saying the casual shouldn't be here and the casual saying, well, you guys are... Tryhards or whatever, um, you know. I wanted to give uh, you know us all sort of different language and talk about you know something where we can self apply. Say, you know, I'm a faithful gamer, I'm a progression gamer, I'm whatever. Rather than making this pose that you know I'm a I'm a badass, essentially is what the hardcore's want to say, and the casuals saying that you know you you put too much into this and maybe you shouldn't because um, I think most of those are you know judgment calls. There's a little bit about condemnation, um, and I you know I don't think that's necessarily appropriate. and It definitely doesn't help. Uh, in terms of realizing that we're all, uh, you know, immersed in these in these worlds together, and we just all want uh, slightly different variations on our on you know the uh, the pulls on our time.
1: Do you see any kind of intersection between the different types and approaches of gamers and your work in in gaming masculinity and embodiment? <laughs> I don't
0: know if I can answer that one. Can you rephrase?
1: Sure. Um, do you feel that if it's a let's say a pure gamer who's who's sort of this idealized concept from the viewpoint of the of the game designer, where right. this is the person who's going to go enjoy the game for the game's sake? Sure. That person, if if male, let's say, since we we want to simplify to to the smallest term possible. If if that person is male, are they more or less likely to have some kind of a a personal masculinity tied up in the, the gamer identity versus say a productive gamer?
0: Right. And I, I think I think part of that you see implicated in uh some of the what we think of as like the discourse of the game designers themselves. They they understand that they design certain types of content that cater to the people who are at the you know the cutting edge of, of competition. And that competition and that status that they garner from it, you know, it's, it's important in terms of, uh, you know, reinforcing their sense of it, it could be multiple things. I mean, if we're talking about competitive play, this could be about, you know, domination over other players. If we're talking about uh, saying some of the, the game worlds it could be uh, economically speaking. So say if you're, you know, one of the top, uh, you know, rating guilds or whatever, you have access to goods uh, that most of the community do not. And you can, uh, turn that into sort of a status pose, and I think that uh, works, or at least walks quite in line with you know what uh, you know my discipline talks about as uh, sort of marketplace uh, masculinity. That is, that masculinity is is now formulated within the capitalist arena. Right, you have to you understand that yeah, violence and physicality and so forth are part of that construct, but that's not all that masculinity encapsulates anymore. You know, part of it's about you know, dominance and control within uh, economic fields, emotional fields. Um, and, you know, I think gamers feel like they get access to some of that. You know, if I'm walking around with the, the coolest, uh, you know, uh, most powerful sword, uh, you know, on the server at a particular moment in time, uh, you know, that sets me an edge above uh, some of the other gamers that are out there. And it was one of my original interests um, because, you know, we've talked about already growing up, I want to say growing up geek, uh, growing up as a gamer, um, you know, I, uh, felt that the reason that I went to game worlds was to escape sort of that, that jock culture that, you know, being stuffed in a locker sort of masculine showboating, blah, 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 garbage. And I wanted to move away from sort of that toxicity and that games allowed me to still sort of embody sort of heroic characters and so forth, but they were a little bit more, uh, you know, they're, again, they're isolated from some of the social realms, uh, and I, I feel like we, uh, at least some of the sort of OG geeks or whatever you want to call us, uh, developed this this understanding that, well, I'm getting some of these status benefits, and I'm getting a lot of this reinforcement, like money and power, and I saved the world, and so on and so forth, uh, in, these, in these games. And then when they went social, when they became connected technologies, uh, you know, we ended up with sort of this new development of, of gamers being able to do or reformulate, as we might say, masculinity in uh, digital communities. Because now, you know, I don't have to, you know, attack you in a bar fight over, you know, an argument about sports teams. Uh, You know, now I can uh, do that in PVP in one of these games, or now I don't necessarily have to be the CEO of whatever sort of company because I own the economy on this server and wow, right? Like I, I charge the prices I want to charge. I have more money than I'll ever know what to do with. Um, you know, or even on the sort of performance on the cooperative end, you know, I'm, I belong to one of the best raid guilds, uh, you know, on the server, which means that when we conquer something, they find, one of the things that I always found was fascinating. They find these popular areas in these game worlds to sort of to peacock, to sit around with their new bad sword or whatever, uh, and to, to show off, to have other people admire, you know, their dedication to the game, their hard work, uh, and then they distance themselves from that. They're like, ah, oh, but it wasn't really that difficult. Right. Uh, it, it, you know, that fight was pretty, as they say, the fight was pretty face roll, uh, you know, sort of, uh, distancing themselves from the, the difficulties that were actually involved in conquering the dragon, whatever. Now they just have the reward and they can also show you that there's, there's just absolutely no way that you'll ever be as good at that, uh, as good as they are. Uh, but that's a very complex, uh, you know, set of variables that the reason that they find themselves in that position is a union of a a number of different, uh, elements. They have people who are, you know, that dedicated to the game who are rather skilled, but who also have flexible schedules who also believe that this is, uh, important for, you know, whether it is their, uh, you know, their social reputation on the, the server or in, you know, in the days that we are now and sort of streaming these experiences, um, many people even, you know, try to monetize this stuff. You know, if you're, uh, a raider, and you are doing sort of the cutting edge stuff. You're uh, streaming on Twitch or anything along these lines. So the game community sits in awe and watches you, uh, you know, kick dragon butt. And uh, you know, I think there's definitely a good uh, charge for for men who find themselves ousted because gamers, geeks, are not part of the hegemonic project of masculinity. They, just, they don't find themselves there. Uh, but within geek culture, they can sort of reformulate some of those same aspects—economic you know, power and physical domination, although it's virtual physical domination—to um, sort of you know fit that framework upon whatever deeds they commit uh, in the virtual world. And I think they can find that to be a a coat that's quite shiny to show off to the gamer community, because many you know many people around do find uh, those players sort of awe-inspiring. They are they are the people out here doing it right, and they're doing it. Uh, you know, every night, or uh, you know, trying uh, to conquer these things that many of us will never have the opportunity to to conquer.
1: So there are really multiple levels of conspicuous consumption happening there.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, I, I sort of mentioned the the consumption aspect is just is fascinating, not only in the turn for you know, um, just you know, if you, if you sort of shelve. So that even just the slight little masculinity aspect there. And you look at gamers doing the, the peacocking thing and the showboating thing just for their consumption activities alone. Um, you know, if I just want to, in some ways, like if I, uh you know, one thing that's popular now, microtransactions and all these things, you know, digital goods, the, the game companies sell you here's a special mount, you know, here's a horse that you can ride. That's $30 and people buy these things. And I'm always taken aback because I'm like, it's a virtual horse. And I have tons of horses in the game and then structure of the game that the game gave me for completing certain things um, that I don't need to swipe a credit card for. And I was like, why, you know, why would they ever want to do this? And, you know, there's various reasons, but one of them does tend to be uh, that it's uh, a way of making a statement about their social class. They here, I spent 30 bucks on a virtual horse. And I line up with all the other people who spent 30 bucks on a virtual course and we jump around together and we celebrate our consumption activities. It's no different than buying, you know, brand name, uh, brand name shoes or, you know, certain kind of cars or whatever consumption items that are out here or found out here in the, the social world because it becomes, uh, or the social solid world, because it becomes uh, in many ways, uh, you know, sort of the same activity. It's a, it's a social comparison. And, uh, you know, when you press them about this, like, you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't design things that are out of reach for people who can't spend extra money. Uh, you know, some of the, and again, it's sort of a multitude of rationale, but one of the, the aspects uh, or the responses that you get from these gamers is that, uh, you know, so what it's 30 bucks. I have that money to be able to spend on that, that game or this game. Why take that away from me? Why take my power as a consumer away from me because you can't afford it. Um, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, important that there's stuff for me to buy, um, so that I can, uh, you know, either show off my social class or even just sort of shrug it as, yeah, I know there are $500 of extra, you know, digital goods I can spend on this game and I can do that because I have the disposable income. So you can't, that sucks to be you, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be able to. Um, and I found that a very interesting rationale in terms of, you know, just sort of uh, postures of social class within these games.
1: Now, let's lest our listeners come to the impression that gaming is all about Class struggle and toxic masculinity. <laughs> sure, um, there's uh, As we we do tend to focus on the negative when we're studying these. Oh, things, of course, yeah. Um, we're both gamers. Right. We, we talked about that. We we both carve out time to uh, to dedicate to this, but. Games can also be good for education, yes? I mean, you found interesting, unique ways to apply. it. You've been winning awards for this.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, local. We'll just keep it low. It's nothing brilliant for sure. But uh, the university I work uh, at, so I'm at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And, um, you know, I've been teaching there. At least I've been in my current position for about four, four and a half years. And, um, yeah, I've, I've won uh, a handful of teaching awards actually for um, something I I think is kind of old hat now that people uh, are – have normalized or under, come to understand because many digital technologies use these techniques, but um, I use uh, basically certain game mechanics. I borrow from, quite heavily, I borrow from role-playing games because obviously that's my uh, sort of native language uh, to insert uh, certain types of mechanics into my uh, courses. And uh, sort of in a nutshell, if I just give the you know, elevator pitch or whatever uh, sometimes we're required to do, uh, I teach uh, an intro course. And in my intro course, uh, the students, you know, complete various types of work. And all their work has, uh, you know, titles that I borrow from games. So they have quests. They do boss battles. They have random encounters. They turn in grinds, like all this stuff. That's, they get treasure chests and magic fragments and so forth. But they turn in all this work, and the work accumulates some points. In my class, they're experience points, just like they would be in any RPG. And at certain levels uh, or certain thresholds of experience, they level up. Uh, so in the intro class, it happens to be standardized at 20. So every 20 EXP there, and they level up. And when they level up, they earn a the magic point. So uh, when I'm trying to pitch this to non-gamer or novice folk, I say magic points just believe them to be sort of a form of currency that you have, right? You are saving up some sort of gold, and you get to spend this currency. You get to spend these magic points on spells. You get to spend them on magic, Uh that I've developed, we have a Grimoire, it's a little magic book uh, that I post on our online uh, platform, and I say that these, well, I've designated, I've created these spells, and these spells help them on certain assignments. So say, you know, the con example would be, uh, you know, a fire spell, you get to cast fireball, would blow up like a multiple choice question on a test, and they uh, incur an MP cost for, for doing that. Um, or there's some pro-social magic. So I have a, a blood magic school in my uh, grimoire, and they uh, all of the blood magic is about helping not only themselves, but helping the class as a whole. So they might help. Uh, say, So the quick example would be on quests. If a certain amount of the students complete a quest, the class uh, could possibly benefit as a whole, like all of them could earn bonus points. Well, there's certain magic that will help them do that uh, more easily and so students become, or sort of get situated, or at least this is my premise, I, I make them uh, position themselves as sort of strategic thinkers. Like here, I've given you the, the access to these abilities, right? And some of you might think these spells are super awesome, and some of you might think these spells totally suck and I'm never going to use them. Um, but they should be part of your understanding of yourself as a learner, Right? if you're a strong paper writer or you're a strong test taker or you're weak in some of these areas we'll look at the magic how does the magic help you strategize about where you should spend the special currency uh, in helping yourself do as best as you possibly can uh, in the class because the sort of the pitch meaning that I give for this is you know many of these classes standardized courses are constructed in a way that um, they cater to the people who perform well on certain assessments if I'm teaching an intro class and I have you know, a midterm and a final and maybe one paper, um, the people who are going to do well in that class are people who do well on tests. Um, So maybe I want to develop sort of a a more uh, diverse spectrum of work and then give students the option to sort of think critically about, well, not only what work should I engage in, but what work should I make more uh, advantage to me or what work should I sort of try to shore up my weaknesses by using some of these magic abilities. And, um, yeah, it's been... It's been very good it's it's uh you know helps students enjoy my class uh uh quite a bit more uh I'm generally tasked with teaching non majors so the buy in to the discipline is usually rather low to begin with so not only am I here to make you know this one sound super fascinating and awesome, but uh, I wanna make it as painless for the general ed uh folks as Is possible and turning into sort of a game like structure has been uh, very beneficial. I've had uh, a lot, a lot of positive feedback about that, and I I can't uh, can say I appreciate that feedback uh, enough because it is definitely reinforcing for all the labor we put into building these courses.
1: It certainly brought you plenty of accolades from, uh, from current and former students online as I was looking into this. Oh, God, you're creeping but... on me. <laughs>
0: no, that's fine. I try not to work because I, I worry.
1: But, yeah, that's good to hear. No, you, uh, you have pretty much universal uh, uh, positive reviews. And you've even found at least one additional way to, to bring students into your research the illustrations and cover art for your book.
0: Oh, yes. Um, I you know mentioned in, in passing when I was <laughs> in the death throes of trying to finish this this manuscript, um, there was a debate, and I'm going to try not to get on the publisher about this, but there was a debate uh, about cover art. Um, you know, I was told, here's here's the process. You send in some photos. We do what we can. We send it over to the art department. We send you a mock-up. Uh, and let's just say that mock-up came back and I had, uh, about lost it because it was it was ugly and um so i asked at that point uh i was like can i buy somebody's labor um if i put my own money behind it can i uh get somebody to do uh, cover art for me and you know they're they're all about you know uh bottom line so yeah expenses not on them sure go for it so so i was like you know if nothing else i could probably post on DeviantArt art or any of those sort of spaces and and find someone who can you know, conjure up some pretty interesting stuff. But instead, I had, uh, I had a student in one of my uh, courses at the time who was constantly doodling on every boss battle. So boss battles in my classes are exams. And um, she's constantly doodling on the, all the exams, uh, which wasn't, wasn't uh, actually aspect of she wasn't paying attention. She was so brilliant that she filled everything out and then had time to sit there and draw an animated picture for sort of the theme of every question. And so I asked her, uh, <laughs> do you, you know, do sort of, uh, sort of kind of contract work? If I, if I, if I give you sort of a commission, would you be interested in, in drawing this cover for me? And she was super excited about that. So Marina ended up, uh, drawing the, the cover art and we were in sort of a panic. I was given, I think two days, uh, by the publisher to get this done. Uh, we, you know, dusted up in Photoshop or whatever. And then while I was doing that, I asked the, uh, editor, I was like, well, you know, I also have this interesting idea. Could I could I have a little picture that captured the theme of every chapter in my book? Because this is exactly what this student had been doing uh, on my boss battles. And she was like, well, you know, as long as it doesn't go over, you know, 10 pictures or whatever, I think that'd be fine. And uh, I was like, yes, yes. So I, I pressed my student pretty hard. I was like, could you could you possibly do just a handful of black and white doodles capturing these themes? And I kind of gave her the overview of what the chapters were about uh, and what I thought sort of the picture probably Uh, should look like. And so, yeah, it ended up being, uh, you know, a little bit more than just a wall of text uh, in terms of uh, speaking to the book. You have uh, some fun little comic doodles in there that try to capture the theme of each individual uh, chapter. Uh, And I think, you know, if nothing else, it personalized it for me. Uh, It made it a lot more, um, you know, palatable. And I became much more invested in having, you know, that small aspect of control rather than, uh, you know, deal with whatever artistic limitations that they're, uh, art department had.
1: I think it adds to the overall, uh, if a book can have an ambience, it's, it's kind of the book's ambience of readability. I mean, this is not, this is not written as a uh, textbook. It's, it's quite comfortable to read, uh,
0: downright entertaining in a lot of places. Good. I'm always, always glad to hear that. And, uh, and that was the intention. We, we talked sort of about, uh, appealing to certain, like the public rather than writing something that is, you know, for, academia or something that's for your, your small little enclave of brilliant geniuses or whatever that only they understand what you really mean. Um, you know, I've never uh, sort of framed myself as a teacher uh, in that way. I've always been trying to, you know, make uh, the discipline more uh, open or more appealing to a broader audience, it's particularly because we're not, uh, you know, a heavily sought out uh, major. So I tried to, to write in, in many ways, kind of the way I teach um, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek. It's a little, uh, you know, my, my language is not exactly uh highbrow academic, uh, but still getting to uh, the gut of some of those, those issues just in a, you know, hopefully, and I'm glad to hear that reinforcement. It's sort of a uh, highly readable uh, and enjoyable uh, sense.
1: It's um, absolutely. In, in fact, if I, if I teach another freshman class, um, intro I have every intention of of using at least some portion of it um, because it's so approachable and and it's it's such comfortable subject matter that so
0: many of us can relate to yeah for sure and I'm yeah, glad to hear that to borrow away from from anything at all especially because I don't ever feel uh comfortable assigning my own stuff uh I don't know how <laughs> certain academics just you know crush their guilt in doing that but uh, cause it is pretty common practice it seems, or at least it is on my campus. But, um, you know, I feel bad enough. I think I have my students read one article that I, I wrote and, uh, uh, and in that I'm like, I, I feel icky, like narcissistic and stuff. So, um, so yeah, the, the idea that other people might pick up the book, uh, and use it for, especially for classroom purposes is, uh, is brilliant. And then on top of that for, you know, even the general public, uh, who might be interested, you know, just sort of casually in, and what kind of weird things gamers are doing or understanding a little bit more about, uh, you know, a gamer that they know uh, who plays. uh, At least there's some, you know, exploration, at least uh, some of the, not everything by far, but uh, some of the probably uh, pillar conversations or community issues that are going on in at least some of the, you know, more online or persistent uh, game worlds that uh, I've spent uh, years now playing in.
1: I, I think it can be enlightening for for outsiders as well as insiders to do a little bit of introspection in that regard um, but speaking of which, what are you working on these days what's what's your latest research
0: and, and interests in that no oh, i mean that that one is a that one's a tough one i'm I'm going to take a unfortunately a very hard turn away from uh, many of this uh many much of this area uh, I still have interested in, uh interest in digital consumption and i still have interest in uh, what we call legacy experience. So the idea that you know players bring uh, sort of an archive of of understanding and mastery with them to to new titles and whether that makes them available for uh, teaching novices in those uh, spaces. But I just got uh, or secured a little bit of very small, very small amount of uh, funding for me and a student project. It has to do with um, uh, there's actually no way to not put it darkly, but uh, parents who regret having their kids, so, um, we're looking into, uh, you know, this idea that, uh, parents end up uh, in a situation, uh, where their life unfolded maybe in a way that, um, they didn't want it to, uh, and are looking at, uh, still raising and participating, uh, this child and, uh, and, and doing the parental role. So I'm not looking for people who are abandoned or anything along those lines. Um, but, you know, fantasize or think about their life might have unfolded differently, uh, had, uh, this not been, uh, the situation they found themselves in and this is largely exploratory. there's a handful of digital communities out there uh, you know I regret having kids or children um, you know um, you know Facebook groups and so forth that uh, we're looking to kind of tap into and try to understand some of uh, what's going on but we're not really uh, fine-tuned on where the direction is. most qualitative work tends to be sort of open option before we refine where our research questions happen uh, to go but um you know they're very enthusiastic as i refer to my students who are researchers most of the time research minion uh who is uh highly invested in and in, in doing some of this work and uh and maybe you know taking a small break from game culture will be kind of fun for me uh and then i'll revisit it when i'm not so burnt out from the book <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is a
0: feeling i know all
1: too well yeah Excellent. So I'll look forward to having you back on
0: the show once uh, once that next one comes out, then. Oh, yeah, sure. I'm I'm sure. And maybe by then I'll have, uh, you know, somebody to thank for uh, for writing it next time.
1: <laughs> I, I speaking of which that acknowledgement section had me cracking up. <laughs> uh, I, so normally, uh, just to, to illustrate this to the readers, because we assume that no one has, has picked up the book yet. Um, the acknowledgement section of your book thanks no one. <laughs> kind of. I <laughs> mean, what is
0: that all? About? Sure. I mean, it starts that way. It starts rather bleak, right? Um. I mean, eventually, I, I think the the person who inspired me to social sciences, you know, from when I was a high schooler, and I think my grandmother for you know not leaving me to die in the ditch. Um. But you know, originally, as you speak to the you know acknowledgement sections, are usually about you know people you exploited their time and labor. Uh, to get things done, whether that be, you know, colleagues or graduate students or undergrads or anybody who read um, manuscripts or so forth. But, um, you know, quite often, and I I hate being, you know, sort of very bleak about this, but quite often as a, you know, an academic who hasn't exactly found the position that I feel like I'm supposed to be in quite yet, or, you know, the promise of that is somewhere on the horizon, I do feel like I don't get uh, very many helping hands, you know, the idea that you... Uh, as an academic, have some sort of network, and maybe you publish things uh, or co-author things with um, other you know, people. I've I've never really had that support. Um, you know, my original—not I'm not going to use names—but my original dissertation committee actually dissolved over the fact that uh, I liked teaching too much and didn't want to res- support my research interests. So, um, you know, I've had a, a lot of sort of obstacles in that direction, and I, I wanted to be candid about that. I think uh, so. I started off by saying unfortunately and maybe you know to the detriment of the readers and I apologize for that, but uh, no one helped me uh, think through any of this this writing or uh, any of these chapters. no one looked over any drafts. Uh, no one helped me transcribe anything. no one helped me at, at any point along this line. This has been a, a burden that I've, I've shouldered alone and um, and you know uh, I'm proud of it but at the same time I do feel that you know I've just been sort of uh, an isolated little, element uh operating kind of in academia but sort of on the fringe of academia and uh and and thus there's there's really no one to to name drop and uh in the beginning is it for for grandma the student who doodled all the comics and mr x the guy who uh opened the door and got me into all this garbage that i can't escape from now so (laughs) i think that's a sentiment that a lot of people our generation
1: can can relate to the i mean i'm a free agent myself i have uh um, at at the uh, encouragement of one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiographies, I keep every single rejection that I ever received. <laughs> I have an I have intention of plastering a wall with them. I have over 300. Oh, wow. Over 300 rejections. That's... From jobs. Jobs and publishers. publications, yep. I, I have never once had an interview uh, for any job. Wow. Other than the one I currently have. Right. Uh, over 300 of them.
0: Well, you, you and I are, you know, uh, connected by the soul in in that regard. If I, you know, didn't fall into, uh, essentially the position I have now, my original uh, intro teacher retired, uh, after I was about two years unemployed, I was living in a garage. Um, yeah. Uh, so it it sort of worked out because I I knew some of the faculty here, uh, at least the Person who was currently chair at the time, uh, and that at least helped get me an interview. Before that, I think I had one uh, some you know podunk school out in the middle of nowhere who was clearly not interested or impressed with me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I feel in that regard. I, I think if you know some serendipity didn't play uh, a part in it, uh, all of the cool you know magic and spellcasting stuff that my students get to do every day uh, wouldn't have ever happened.
1: Which is uh, it, it's it's unfortunately rather telling about the state of our industry as a whole. I have friends from my from my doctoral cohort who one's delivering pizza, another works in a completely unrelated job. the uh, The smartest move that I think I've seen was a friend who went back to school for library studies. Wow, okay, librarian—that was a good idea but not one of
0: us has a, a full-time teaching job at a university, which is great. I mean, this is just a wonderful pitch for selling people on the discipline, right? You're, uh, you're really playing up the go get your PhD. Uh,
1: <laughs> I, I have always encouraged my students to do anything else because there, there is nothing as, as, <laughs> as pretty. And it's in the news. they are even going to start taxing us. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, no need to get
1: political on the show. No, no,
0: Totally fine. But but it's it's understandable to be you know transparent about that and hope hopefully that comes off in uh you know uh understanding that some of these yeah, you know, there's a lot of invisible hands behind any academic work, uh most of them I would say. And um, uh, you know, understanding that process isn't just you know individual brilliance uh of you know one person. And I'm not even saying that, you know, uh anything that I produce is, is all that great. Um but uh knowing that, you know, this is usually a, a collaboration of some kind, even if it's informal in terms of you know how it's uh credited. And you know, when it came to try to recite some of those names is this there just weren't any. Um and I've you know just sort of operated again kinda of on the fringe of things and and hopefully like I said next time I've I've got still some positivity that maybe at least if nothing else I will have an undergrad research minion uh you know co author or uh you know, decipher uh, an extensible amount of work uh, on whatever I produce next. So um, that's, that's uplifting.
1: And I, I I do think that's the positive direction that we should be taking um, all of, all of these types of frustrations that maybe it's, we, we just need to create a new model, make our own rules and start working with the undergraduates.
0: Right. And I think there's pushes, at least within our institution for, uh, you know, supporting undergrad uh, research, which, you know, symbolizes the, the detriment and disappointment of uh, the graduate student cohorts that we have, uh, at least in uh, our college. But um, but yeah, I found you know now it's it's difficult sometimes to uh, to ask so much of undergrads given how much they're juggling. But um, but you know you, you have a few shining stars who are uh, likely more dedicated to the to the you know the question or the project than, than maybe even I am and. Uh, uh, and yeah, uh, uplifting them, especially cause they have hopes for graduate school and then pizza delivery after that. So, um, Absolutely. <laughs> and they're, they're the reason we keep doing this. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Good, good, meaningful labor is, uh, is always, is always important.
1: <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like Matsuo Basho says that life is a journey and the journey is home. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Excellent. So uh I hate to eat up all of your day. I know you have plenty of grading to, to get done. Oh yes. But where can our listeners learn more about your work? Uh and where can they pick
0: up the book? Uh for the simplest one from what I've been told from my, you know, three adoring fans, um, is that the the work is easily easiest to find on Amazon. Um I've actually heard some uh hiccups with uh the the publisher's website, uh, in terms of, you know, whether it, it gets put in the cart or whatever. Um, so, you know, Amazon is probably an easy quick Google for game world to get real. Uh, I'm still Zeke Valkyrie. I don't think that'll change anytime soon. And then, uh, for, you know, whatever might be produced in the future or just even, you know, casually or informally, you know, you want to harass me or, uh, send me an email that's hopefully somewhat positive. Um, you know, you can find me on my faculty webpage, uh, at UCS uh, in, uh, the sociology department, um, or at, uh, Z Valkyrie without the E, uh, at uccs.edu. And I am more than willing to talk to, you know, outsiders, whether it's about the teaching and the game stuff, or whether it's about, uh, game communities in the book. Um, you know, I, I just appreciate the, the interest and, and for, you know, your part, I appreciate the, the free publicity and the, the discussion and sort of the synergy, uh, not only in terms of, know, where we find ourselves in our uh, academic careers, but also, um, you know, for people who have long gaming histories and are interested in gaming studies.
1: And I I do think gaming studies is something that's going to continue to take off. So we're, uh, we're just so thrilled to have you on the show. Um, I love the book. We're not supposed to become hagiographic about these
0: things, but it was just such a fun (laughs) I'm I'm definitely glad to hear that. I, I tried to be you know, again, as fun and as palatable as possible. Um, it's, it's, it's my MO when I'm teaching. It's usually what the students give me all those positive reviews you said you creeped on. Uh, that's, uh, you know, definitely the, the idea I went into it with rather than trying to, you know, show up, uh, you know, whatever thought paradigm that might be out there. Uh, it's just, it's never really been my, um, you know, my gig. So.
1: And we do certainly hope that the listeners are going to, uh, at least stop by the library or or Amazon and check out a copy of the book. Um, So thanks a ton for coming on the show. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future.